This episode is brought to you by Milano Cookies. Look, sometimes that long Zen yoga class is just not in the cards. So maybe a cookie is. Pepperidge Farm Milano believes you should make some time for yourself once in a while. I know I have a particular space in my sewing room that I like to just take a few minutes every day. I sit there. I think about things. It's kind of like meditation and munching at the same time. You can get that yummy, beautiful cookie flavor. It makes it luxurious and delightful, and I always feel recharged. Milano cookies are truly a treat worthy of your me time. They're delicate and crispy with luxuriously rich chocolate in the middle. You really want to keep these just for you. So remember to save something for yourself with Pepperidge Farm Milano. The richest, most powerful place on earth. A fiction podcast. Tuman Bay. On an epic scale. Power is everything. Power gives everything. We have to get away from this place. Tuman Bay is our destiny. Now on the iHeart Podcast Network, Tuman Bay. Be sharp and die for Tuman Listen to all episodes of Tomb and Bay Seasons 1 and 2 now for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy B. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. So if you've listened to the podcast for very long, you know I've lived in the South my whole life. Yep. Right? And even though the Supreme Court struck down segregation in America in 1952 with the decision on Brown versus the Topeka Board of Education, most of my K-12 through education was actually heavily influenced by the legacy of segregation and racism. Mine, too. Yeah. I went to public schools in a system that had to bus children to different places to try to maintain the racial balance in schools. I think until I was in 10th grade, we had one family that was not white attending our school. Yeah. Yeah. There was nowhere to, there's no one to bus in. Yeah. It was kind of a pretty homogenized community. Yeah. I, the, the, our school system really, like I lived in a, in a part of the county that had some predominantly African American neighborhoods and some predominantly white neighborhoods. And and depending on how the other parts of the school districts were 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 trending, mm-hmm. that's where boundary lines would move a lot. Yeah. So sometimes I would be on a bus that was like driving past two predominant neighborhoods of one race or another, or on a bus that was picking up all of those kids. It sort of depended. Yeah. So that was really heavily in my consciousness. And the idea of segregation as a subject that related to uh, Caucasian children and African American children, like that is how my experience of, of race and segregation has been. Yeah. Right? And that's one of the reasons that I've really thought before, and it's on the list somewhere, about doing an episode about Brown versus the Topeka Board of Education. Um, I kind of, I'm really interested in who those people were mm-hmm. and how that all played out. We may really still do that. Uh, but that also does get a lot of airtime in most history classes. That's a, you know, yeah, more than other uh, racial relations issues yeah. that get a little more pushed to the side. Most people have heard of, <laughs> know some things about uh, Brown versus Board. Yeah. Uh, I think I did not know about the case we're going to talk about at all today. I didn't either. I certainly never heard about it growing up. Yeah, and where I grew up now has a, a much broader uh, spectrum of, of people who live in the area. Uh, 
but it was really primarily uh, about white children and African-American children. Uh, this was really not the case in, for example, the American Southwest, where Mexican children were segregated away from white children. And the case that changed that in the state of California was Mendez versus Westminster, which really went on to pave the way for the much more well-known Brown versus Board. So that's what we're going to talk about today. Yeah. Uh, and a note on language. At the time, uh, everybody was pretty much using the word Mexican to apply to people, whether they were actually from Mexico or had Mexican heritage. So today we have much more nuanced classifications yes. for people. Uh, but a lot of the language at the time just used Mexican as this blanket term for everyone. So we are going to talk about Mexican and Mexican-American. We're going to use lots of different words, but... Uh, that doesn't quite reflect what people were using at the time in terms of language. Yeah. So first we'll lay the groundwork. Yeah. When the Mexican-American War ended in 1848, the U.S. gained territory from Mexico where Mexicans were already living. And the people that were affected by this had a choice. Uh, they could relocate to the territory Mexico had retained or they could stay in the United States. And Mexicans still in the United States a year after this all went down, would then be considered American citizens. Right. What was supposed to happen was that Mexicans who stayed in United States territory would gain all the rights of citizenship uh, upon being there for a year. What really happened was that discriminatory laws and social norms went into effect pretty much immediately or built on laws that were already there. But even so, people moved from Mexico to the United States for a range of political and economic reasons. Um, there were a lot of things going on in Mexico that caused that, including many of them were fleeing the Mexican Revolution, which started in 1910. And until 1924, there weren't any laws prohibiting Mexicans from entering the United States. So a different climate in terms of um, immigration than there is now. Right. There were also some big incentives uh, for moving to the American side of the border. The United States uh, started restricting immigration from several Asian com countries starting in the late 1880s. And then during and after World War One, the United States also started restricting immigration from parts of Europe. And without an immigrant population um, coming into the country, this led to a labor shortage in some parts of the United States. So in response, employers started to try to recruit more labor from Mexico and Puerto Rico. This was especially true in California as the agriculture industry really started to boom. Uh, and of course, after years of legal back and forth, uh, residents of Puerto Rico became American citizens in 1917. Though because they physically resembled Mexicans and they spoke Spanish, Puerto Ricans were often lumped in with Mexicans in the eyes of many Americans. Yeah, people would use the word Mexican to apply to both Mexicans and Puerto Ricans. Which is not accurate at all. In the least. Um, but because of, you know, some similarities that people would sort of apply the same standard to two completely different groups of people. Because of these and other factors, the Mexican and Mexican-American population in California tripled between 1920 and 1930. And that trend actually shifted a bit uh, with the coming of the Great Depression. So when the Hoover administration launched an effort to deport illegal aliens, it changed things. Uh, it led to both the deportation of Mexicans who were in the United States illegally and American citizens of Mexican descent. 
this effort increased tensions, of course, between Mexican-American and Anglo-American communities. Right. So there were people with Mexican heritage who were citizens of the United States who chose to go back to Mexico during this time and people who were deported back to Mexico during this time. Although many people came to the United States from Mexico because of the promise of work, a lot of times this did not actually work out well. It was really exhausting work under very poor conditions for very low pay. And so unemployment quickly became a big problem in Mexican-American communities, along with the spread of illnesses because of living conditions and overcrowding. So predominantly, Mexican neighborhoods tended to be very poor in this part of the United States, but they were also very close-knit with very strong support networks within the community. So even though people did not have a lot of money or a lot of food or a lot of health care, they really were trying to support each other within their community. So at the same time, looking at it in the context of schools, school funding in California was tied to race as early as 1855. And that's when school budgets were based on the number of white students and only white students in the county. In short order, however, students who were not white were restricted from attending white schools entirely. So only the white students counted is the bottom line. That's the bottom line. And so since only white students counted, only White students were allowed to go to the better schools that were getting most of the money. In 1896, the United States Supreme Court ruled that having separate facilities for people of different races was constitutional, as long as those facilities were equal. And that was the famous Plessy versus Ferguson decision. So segregated classrooms were really, it became the norm for many races and ethnicities in many part of the parts of the United States. And apart from the financial considerations that were involved uh, in school budgets, school boards were genuinely worried about the health and language skills of Mexican-American students. Since so many Mexicans were living in poverty and in generally poor living conditions, some children were, you know, arriving at school in the morning hungry or without having bathed. And illnesses, including serious ones like tuberculosis, would spread rapidly because of the overcrowding and a lack of access to medical care. Unfortunately, at least some administrators and board members associated these traits not with poverty, but with being Mexican. So they attributed it to a racial issue instead of just the fact that they were living in, in some cases, really, really rough conditions. Right. There were also a couple of real factors that did work against many Mexican-American students when it came to keeping up with the rest of the class. Because a lot of Mexican workers were holding seasonal migrant jobs, Mexican-American children were often pulled out of school for months at a time as their parents moved to follow work. This would cause students to fall behind and have to repeat grades. And some Mexican-American families primarily spoke Spanish, which school board members thought would make it hard for the children to keep up in an English-language classroom. This today seems very silly considering how many people will put their children on waiting lists for second language immersion school. Yes. Uh, but at the time, the solution, and we put that in air quotes, to all of these problems was to educate Mexican students separately. And although these facility- facilities were supposed to be equal, in reality, they really did tend to be inferior in pretty much every respect. Uh, from the way the spaces that they were learning and were constructed to how much the teachers and administrators involved in their education were paid. Yeah, that was basically the case in in separate but supposedly equal facilities across the board regarding 
pretty much every race and ethnicity. If, if there was a separate facility for a, a minority population in general, that facility was inferior. Um, so this was not just related to California or uh, or Mexican-American students. Hey, Holly, we have some exciting news. Yeah, I am wildly excited, and uh, people will have another opportunity to watch me cry at art. <laughs> yeah, you sounded so calm, and it's not a calm situation at all. Uh, our trip to Paris last year was really successful, so we're doing another similar trip this year, but this time to Rome and Florence. It's May 14th through 21st, 2020, and like last time, it is with a company called Defined Destinations, who is planning out this whole trip for us. Yeah, and during that week-long trip, we are going to see some of the great art that we have talked about on this show many times, including Michelangelo's David. We are going to go to Tuscany. We're going to visit St. Peter's Basilica. We are going to the Sistine Chapel. So it's going to be a fantastic trip. You can get the whole list of places that we are going and information about booking at defineddestinations.com. Scroll down to the Roman Florence trip with Stuff You Missed in History Class or come over to our social media. We have posts about it there too. On top of this inferiority uh, in the buildings and the teacher pay and all of those sorts of things, the curriculum in classrooms for Mexican-American children was often geared to do two things, to assimilate Mexican children into American culture and to prepare them for a life of labor. In some schools, boys learned trade skills and gardening, while girls learned sewing and homemaking instead of having any academic part of their, their subject work. That kind of makes my blood boil. I know. <laughs> As with many episodes, this is one where just the layers of offensiveness... It pile on the the deeper we get into something. Yeah, it's hard to stay sort of neutral with the information at hand because it just it makes my blood boil. Right. Uh, by 1913, Mexican children were being taught in different classrooms. And the first segregated school in Orange County, California, which is where the Mendez family lived, started in 1919. Occasionally, gifted Mexican children could potentially go to a white school if they agreed to be inspected and visited by white school administrators. Yeah. So if, if a Mexican-American child was particularly stellar in, in academic ability, that child might be able to go to a, a white school if their family agreed to like home visits from school administrators. And I wonder how they would identify students that could academically really kind of when, succeed when they're learning when they're, sewing and gardening. Yeah, when there's no academic part to their curriculum. Yeah. yeah that's a great question. Uh, by 1930, there were 15 Mexican-only schools in Orange County, and between 80 and 90% of schools in the, South, in the Southwest segregated Mexican children. And there were also other court cases along these lines that were happening before the case that we're discussing today, including Alvarez versus Lemon Grove School District and Salvadiera versus Del Rio Independent School District. But these cases, which found in favor of Mexican-American families, either didn't have an effect outside the school system in question for legal reasons or they got overturned during an appeals process. Right. And as sort of a side note, schools were not the only places where Mexicans were being segregated. They were also served last in restaurants after white families had been served. There were racially restricted covenants that allowed Mexicans only to buy property in certain neighborhoods. In some public pools, Mexicans could only swim one day a week, and the next day the pool would be drained 
and cleaned. While we're thinking about that happy <laughs> picture um, and trying to make our blood not boil, uh, we're going to take a brief moment and talk about lumosity. So, Holly, you and I both exercise. Yeah. But we mostly are exercising our bodies. And, yes. And not so much our brains. Yeah, it's just a slug a lot of the time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is sort of it's why lumosity.com is an awesome thing to kind of have a personal trainer. For your brain. For your noggin. I, I would like to say that it does feel like somebody is just kicking my brain into gear. Yeah, in a really good way. Yeah, so based on the science of neuroplasticity, Lumosity.com gives you customized online workouts. And so they're like exercises, but they're fun because they're also games. Uh, and they're for your brain. And it only takes a little while. Yeah. Like 10 or 15 minutes a day. Uh, yeah, and you can be making your brain actually um, sort of have better mental acuity. Right, it's, I have it a sharpened your focus. I have a useless block of time in my mornings that's between two meetings, and it's about eight minutes long. Yeah, I, and previously I've been like, I'm gonna, what am I going to do? I'm going to tidy my desk for eight minutes. Now I'll do some lumosity, so I can try to be a little sharper, a little more focused, boost my problem solving skills, or maybe just think a little more clearly. Yeah, because Lumosity will actually let you customize your program. So if there's one of those areas you really feel like you're struggling with, like you can try to do exercises that will help the part of your brain that helps you remember people's names after you meet them or the part of your brain that helps you not misplace things, which was my primary focus. (laughs) Uh, My primary focus uh, was to be flexibility because my job involves being constantly pulled away from what I'm doing all the time. However, it turns out that I do exceptionally well with that already. Yeah. So instead, I'm working on my memory. We have been using it, and it's been a little bit startling in some regards. Yeah. In that, like, I would not have um, picked the area that I excel in as the area I excel in, which is problem solving. Mm-hmm. I would have thought I would have rated higher in flexibility, but new. No, no. no. <laughs> So that's an area I need to work on. And, I mean, it's a little nice reality check that, yes, you need to be exercising these portions of your brain. Right. uh, Because otherwise they do just kind of uh, atrophy. Yeah. If you don't use it, you're losing it. Yeah. So if you would like to get on this action, which is extremely fun and also challenging, (laughs) go to Lumosity.com today. Click the Start Training button to create your own program and then just start playing your first game. That's lumosity.com and tell them that you heard about it on How Stuff Works. So let's return to the story of the Mendez family. Gonzalo and Felicitas Mendez were the parents in Mendez versus Westminster. Gonzalo was originally from Chihuahua, Mexico, and along with his mother and four siblings, he emigrated to Westminster, California in 1919. He actually attended Westminster Main School, the same school his children were eventually barred from attending uh, when he was a child, although in his late elementary years, he was briefly sent to a segregated school. He and his classmates, who were fluent in English, were eventually transferred back to Westminster, Maine, although he had to drop out to work as an orange picker because his family needed the money. He was naturalized as an American citizen when he was 30 years old. Felicitas was from Puerto Rico. She and her family had moved to Arizona from Puerto Rico in 1926, and they stayed there for about six months. Uh, the working condition for Puerto Ricans there, where they were living, were terrible. And Felicitas' family had participated in protests against these terrible working conditions 
uh, and the fact that their pay was dramatically less from what they had been promised before they immigrated. Felicitas's family then moved to California to a predominantly Mexican ma- neighborhood where she later met Gonzalo. And the pair were married in 1935. They opened a cantina in the Mexican barrio of Santa Ana, and their business was successful, and eventually they saved enough money to buy a house. They had three children who are extremely important to this story. Silvia, Gonzalo Jr., and Jerome. In 1943, when the children were all still under the age of 10, their banker got in touch with them about an asparagus farm in Westminster. It was owned by the Minimitsu family, a Japanese family who was being relocated to an internment camp. It's a whole other topic we could discuss I know. at great length. Uh, the Minimitsus knew that they were likely to lose the farm if they couldn't find a tenant, and they offered to lease it to the Mendez family to protect it under the inter- until their internment was over. Yeah, their hope was that if they had people who were living there and working it for them, that eventually their internment would be over and they would be able to come back to return to their property. Unfortunately, I I do not have knowledge of how that ultimately turned out. Topics for a future Topics podcast. Topics for, yeah, I think we do need a future podcast. I need to first look in the archive and see if there already is one. Yeah. A future co- uh, podcast on uh, internment of Japanese people during World War II. So the, the Mendez family agreed to lease the farm. They closed their cafe, rented out their home, and moved to live on the asparagus farm. Uh, Gonzalo's sister, Soledad, and her husband, Frank Vidari, went with them. Frank had experience running a farm, so he was a logical person to, to bring be, along. Yes, to be involved in this endeavor. And this was just a, it was a really successful enterprise. It spanned 40 acres. It em- employed up to 30 people. Uh, and meanwhile, Gonzalo also managed another farm in the area, and the whole family really continued to prosper. When they moved to the farm, they moved from the barrio to a neighborhood in the Westminster School District, where there was only one other Mexican-American family. In the fall of 1944, Soledad took the children uh, to enroll in Westminster Main School, also known as the 17th Street School. So Soledad was of Mexican-American heritage also, but she had lighter skin, and she had a last name that didn't sound Mexican. So the teacher who was doing the enrollment told her that her her children could go to Westminster Main School, but that the Mendez children would have to go to the Mexican school. They had to go to Hoover Elementary instead of Westminster Main School, uh, which, as we discussed earlier, was generally inferior. The building was in poor condition. There was no playground. The textbooks were a varied assortment and a collection of hand-me-downs from white schools in the area, so probably out of date. Uh, lunch was eaten outside on picnic tables, and since part of the school property was adjacent to a cow pasture, there were flies everywhere, and the manure smell permeated the school area. Right. So Soledad said that if the Mendez children could not attend Westminster, Maine, her children would not be going there either, and she left. When Gonzalo and Felicitas heard about this, they were both understandably outraged. They were both citizens of the United States, and they saw no reason why their children should not attend the school in the district where they lived. So they went to talk to the principal, and they were told that no, the children had to attend the Mexican school. Then they went to both the Westminster and Orange County school boards, and they just kept getting the same answer from everyone. Yeah, everyone was telling them they have to go to the Mexican school. Gonzalo contacted lawyer David C. Marcus, who had recently successfully argued another California civil rights case involving whether Mexicans could be banned from public swimming pools. That answer was no. 
They could not. They discovered that Mexican and Mexican-American children were routinely being segregated in Orange County. This wasn't actually required or allowed by law, though. The Education Code actually read, quote, The governing board of any school district may establish separate schools for Indian children, excepting children of Indians who are wards of the United States government and children of all other Indians who are descendants of the original American Indians of the United States and for children of Chinese, Japanese or Mongolian parentage. Yes. So there were actual segregation laws on the books. But, but none since, of them mention Mexican-American children. Though. Right. So this puts them into kind of an interesting position as far as wanting to to fight what was going on, because there wasn't actually a law <laughs> to, to try to repeal. Yeah. Um, so first they tried to get the support of other Mexican families in the district to file a class action suit. But many of the families they talked to actually didn't want the school board to change its policy. The Mexican school that their children attended was right in the middle of the barrio where they were living. It was extremely convenient. So the parents liked that they had their children close by, that they could walk their children to school in the morning, that children could come home at lunchtime. There were real practical reasons that people liked having their children in a school that was in their neighborhood. Um, And so that, that made it a little tricky for them to start to build a case. And believing that they'd have better success if they could prove that it wasn't just the Westminster School District in question, Gonzalo and his attorney actually toured the area and they interviewed families and looked for other people that would be willing to join the suit. So outside of their area, they expanded to try to find some support and other people that would rally along with their cause. Right. And eventually four other families did join them. The families of Lorenzo Ramirez, Frank Palomino, William Guzman, and Tomas Estrada. Some of these families included veterans from World War II. These are people who had just returned from fighting for their country, specifically fighting Nazis for their country, and they were really unwilling to accept treatment as second-class citizens once they got back. And with their involvement, the defendants included four school districts. So Westminster, which uh, the Mendez family had, you know, started this groundswell in, Santa Ana, Garden Grove, and El Medina, which is Orange County. Yes. Meanwhile, Felicitas and other mo- mothers continued to pressure their school boards to try to change the- their decisions. Felicitas also helped organize the Asociación de Padres de Niños Mexican-Americanos. I'm just going to apologize for my pronunciation. I am not fluent in Spanish. Uh, to show support during the trial. All of this was extremely brave on a number of levels. The Mendez family and the other families faced the possibility of racist retribution from the Anglo community and anger from people in the Mexican-American community who didn't want this suit to go forward. Uh, many laborers also ran financial risks associated with the trial, and they would be missing work to testify. And for this last part, Gonzalo actually reimbursed people out of pocket. So it was a really important fight to them. They were willing to kind of literally put their money where their mouth was. Right. So they filed a class action lawsuit in the Federal District Court of Los Angeles in March of 1945. They chose to file this in federal court instead of state court because there was no state law being violated that they could try to repeal. And before we go into exactly what this lawsuit involved. There's a city far away. A fiction podcast. The richest, most powerful place on earth. On an epic scale. Tumon Bay. Tumon Bay. Tumon Bay. A vast empire threatened by rebellion. Power is everything. 
power gives everything. We have to get away from this place, or we will die too. The truth makes us strong. Tuman Bay is our destiny. History and fantasy collide. They are among us. Who? First a few, and now many. From creators John Scott Dryden and Mike Walker. The only thing I ask of you is total and complete loyalty. Now on the iHeart Podcast Network, Tuman Bay. Be sharp and die for Tuman Bay! Listen to all episodes of Tuman Bay Seasons 1 and 2 now for free on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And now we will get back to the Mendez family and the lawsuit that they filed in the federal district court. So as we had just discussed, there was no state law in California at the time requiring segregation that was based on race that was related to Mexican-Americans. Right. So the lawsuit's argument was that in absence of a state law, segregation violated the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment and California state law. The ACLU and the National Lawyers Guild also filed amicus briefs. Yes. And if, if you remember our Loving versus Virginia episode, those are the briefs that are from people not directly related to the case who have sort of expert legal advice to include. Um, the trial started on July 5th, 1945, and it lasted for two weeks. It was to be decided by Judge Paul J. McCormick. The school board was to be defended by Orange County Counsel Joel E. Ogle, but he wound up turning it mostly over to the deputy county counsel, George F. Holden. The testimony for the plaintiffs included evidence of segregation in several school districts, evidence of how the schools for Mexican children were inferior, and testimony from Mexican-American children about how the segregation had affected them. Parents and education experts also testified. Dr. Ralph Deals of UCLA's anthropology department was an expert witness. He argued that segregation set up white children as superior and Mexican children as inferior and drew parallels to what was going on in Nazi Germany. The school board's defense was um, bizarrely offensive to today's ear, so kind of be ready for that. Right. Uh, James L. Kent, the superintendent of the Garden Grove School District, said Mexicans were inferior and had poor hygiene and a lower ability level and outlook than white children. He also said Mexican families had loose morals. So he kind of was just making up some garbage. Yeah. Because he, I don't know, feared change, didn't like them. Yeah, well, as, as we talked about earlier, he kind of conflated problems associated with poverty with problems that were innate to an ethnicity. Correct. Which... I don't maybe it's because I I, I am a little idealistic sometimes. <laughs> I kind of think the better option would have been to address the problems associated with poverty rather than segregating the poor children into their own school. You hippie. I know. <laughs> no, it's I, crazy. I do tend to be uh, idealistic in that regard. Uh, and it's important to remember that it was a different social climate, but it's hard not to kind of be a little judgmental of statements like that. I know. Blanket statements to say those people are terrible for the following reasons. Yeah. We really need to keep them separate. Well, and the the judge, he would sort of call them on it. He was like, so if a white child has problems with hygiene and is having trouble keeping up, what do you do? And they're like, 
well, we talked to the parents and we maybe hold them back a year. He's like, so you don't just segregate them into somewhere else? (laughs) So Frank A. Henderson, who was the superintendent of the Santa Ana School District, also acknowledged that they were basically making school assignment decisions based on people's surnames and their skin color, which is ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, in terms of the legal aspects, the school board's tried to build their defense around the idea that this was not a matter for a federal court, since it was a county and not a state or federal matter. Yeah, it was not a very strong defense. It's a little flaily at that point, I think. Yeah. And so, unsurprisingly, Judge Paul McCormick of the U.S. District Court, Southern District of California, Central Division, ruled that the segregation of Mexican-American students did violate the law. He also describes segregation itself as inherently unequal, writing, quote, a paramount requisite in the American system of public education is social equality. It must be open to all children by unified school association, regardless of lineage. So then this takes a turn into the yet more offensive because the school boards appealed to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit in San Francisco. While the appeal was taking place, since they had been told that what they were doing was illegal, they all kind of handled their own integration efforts efforts separately uh, by their own devices. In the case of the Westminster District, grades one through four wound up going to Westminster, Maine, and grades five through eight went to Hoover with the Mexican-American children and the Anglo children in the same school. But that meant that grades five through eight were in the inferior school school. (laughs) with the cow pasture and no playground and no cafeteria. So nobody wins. Right. It Uh, was not good. The ACLU, the National Lawyers Guild, the Japanese American Citizens League, the American Jewish Congress, the NAACP and the Attorney General of California all filed amicus briefs on behalf of Mendez in the appeal. And we're not going to rehash the testimony because it was basically the same testimony over again with the school boards again trying to build this defense that this was just a county thing and was not something that the federal court should be messing with. The Ninth Circuit's decision, which came out in 1947, was unanimous. It upheld the lower court's ruling on the basis that it violated California law, not on past Supreme Court precedent. Since California had no segregation law for Mexicans, earlier Supreme Court decisions didn't actually apply. So it didn't apply the ruling more broadly to the other races or ethnicities. Right. They still kind of had a a battle of their own to deal with. So while this did this, this ruling did achieve what people were hoping it would achieve as far as ending the segregation of Mexican-American children, it was a pretty narrow ruling. It was based only on the fact that this didn't this wasn't within California law, like it didn't expand that out to the equal protection clause of the 14th Amendment Um, at this point doing possibly the only thing they had done right so far. The school boards elected not to appeal to the Supreme Court. And this may be one reason why this case has become much less well-known than Brown versus the Topeka Board of Education. And after this ruling had finalized, uh, and apart from overturning segregation of Mexican students in California, the Mendez versus Westminster case had other effects later on. It really put a spotlight on segregation in California. Governor Earl Warren, who later became Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, proposed to the state legislature that California repeal all of its segregation laws in 1946. He signed this bill into law in 1947. He went on uh, to author the Supreme Court's opinion in Brown v. Board, 
and in Loving versus Virginia, which we talked about in earlier episodes of this podcast, uh, along with many, many other <laughs> civil rights legislations. Yeah. The, the Warren court was, in a lot of ways, extremely progressive when it came to rights and liberties. Yeah, they really had uh, an eye on achieving equality, I think. And while it was not cited as a direct precedent in Brown versus Board of Education, the NAACP did use Mendez versus Westminster as a test case when trying to see how they might get Brown versus Board overturned. Earl Warren's ruling on Brown versus Board has a lot in common with McCormick's ruling in the Mendez case. Yeah, it was clear that he had read and digested that written opinion thoroughly. Uh, the NAACP's amicus brief was also written by Thurgood Marshall, who argued Brown versus Board before the Supreme Court. Many of the challenges uh, to segregation before this point had focused on the fact that facilities were separate, but they were not equal. This was a case in which the entire concept of separate but equal was thrown out, and it succeeded. This helped propel America towards actually desegregating schools. Yeah, while there were people who were working on integration before this point, uh, there was still a lot of focus on trying to make the facilities be actually equal. Uh, And this really proved, it was sort of a proof of concept of, hey, we can actually get these laws completely overturned instead of just focusing on getting the facilities to be on the same level as one another. Gonzalo Mendez died in 1964, and he was 51 at the time. Felicitas Mendez died in 1998. There are actually two California schools named after them. A commemorative stamp came out in 2007 for the 70th anniversary of the ruling. And Silvia became an activist. She was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom in 2011 at the age of 74. Yeah, she went on to do just a a lot of lecturing on the issues relating to Mexican-American people in the United States and segregation. A lot of education education of children on this case in particular, uh, because it turns out that this... Even people who are living in that part of the country don't necessarily know that this ever existed because so much of the focus about the civil rights movement is on uh, African-American children rather than children of other races who were also put into segregated schools. Yeah, and the the school integration thing is largely focused, as we've said, on Brown v. Board. Yeah. So this does kind of fall by the wayside. Yeah, and as a weird side note, I watched a lot of videos... For this, there, there are just there are a lot of videos that have been recorded that are about the case, and a lot of them had this weird undertone that really bothered me. That was like, well, everybody thought that Mexican children couldn't speak English, but the Mendez children could totally speak English, and I would like so, so that would have been okay if <laughs> if they didn't. It's very strange. Yeah, I mean, uh, we talked about this a little bit yesterday when you were commenting on this. And uh, like I said, I think the idea is that they were trying to build a case of how ridiculous it looked to try to keep these kids out of any school. But it ends up making it look like they were the exception in the Mexican-American community. Right, which is... And the others still should maybe be segregated. It it set up a weird yeah, tonality. Yeah, a very odd tone. And, yeah. and while the Mendez family was definitely more affluent than a lot of other Mexican-American families in the area, uh, that, that doesn't mean that all the prejudices about <laughs> all of the other Mexican-American people were correct, because... That is not true. No. So, yes, I am really glad that I got to learn about this case. It was not one that I was familiar with before now. As yeah. As said. Me either. 
Do you also have some listener mail for us? You know what? I do. Hooray! This is from Sean. It's a little bit of a longer piece of mail. And Sean says, I'm a longtime fan of the podcast, and I particularly love when podcast subjects pop up elsewhere in my life. I had just started reading At Home by Bill Bryson, and he starts talking about the Crystal Palace, which I just heard about from you. Woo! Before that, I had just finished up a book called Outlaw Marriages by Roger Strikematter. Sorry if I said that wrong. Which included a chapter on Jane Addams and Mary Rosette Smith. And the next day, saw that the next podcast up was Jane Addams. I was very excited that I knew a little about the lady's relationship from my reading and looked forward to hearing you talk about it. After listening to part one, where you talked a bit about it and used then used the terms Boston marriage and companion, I was concerned that that would be all you said about it. Now listening to your second part, I understand why you spoke of their relationship the way you did, but I'm going to respectfully disagree with you. I would like to say I love it when people respectfully <laughs> disagree with us. Because sometimes we just get screamed at, and then that breaks my heart a little bit. But but I am happy to be respectfully disagreed with yeah. in time. So Sean goes on to say, I am not an Adams or Smith expert. And full disclosure, I am a gay man from Chicago. So my bias will be a little skewed. I fully understand why you as editors of a source of historical fact would not want to identify someone as definitely of a certain sexual orientation without written documentation. But I also feel that the context of the time is the main reason for the minimal account of written documentation of their relationship. But that documentation does exist. If you can get a copy of Outlaw Marriages, I suggest you check it out. The chapter on Smith and Adams is brief. But Stripe Matters site includes many cited sources that I think disagree with your assertion that there is no documentation. The women always slept in the same bed, even sending word ahead to the hotels. Adams' servants knew to bring concerns about their employer's health to Smith. Adams' correspondence to Smith included promises to be hers till death, and during a time when they were apart, saying, there is reason in the habit of married folks sleeping together. Smith not only gave money to Hull House, but provided Adams with a personal allowance throughout the four decades of their relationship. To say that you can only identify people as LGBT if they themselves implicitly said that, does a disservice to the gay community as we continue to fight, even in the 21st century, for our equal treatment in the world and in history by eliminating many historical figures who would clearly identify as homosexual or transgender if they live today. When evidence suggests, as it does in the case of Adams and Smith, I think we need to acknowledge it boldly, even if also mentioning some uncertainty. I appreciated your podcasts on Loving versus Virginia and feel that this podcast is a supporter of equal rights for the LGBT community. My question to you is, does your assertion apply only to gays? If you don't have any historical documentation for where a figure in history implicitly calls himself or herself heterosexual, will you not say that there is a debate about that? Unfortunately, homosexual relationships have always been viewed as not real, including some, including to the present day by some in this country and around the world. And I feel your discussion of Adams and Smith perpetuates that double standard. I still love the podcast and I think you do a fabulous job. But I want to express my concern over this because I normally don't like being so assertive with my opinion. And as a blatant attempt to get this email read by you, I've included cute pictures of my two kitties, my girl Stella and my my boy Boris, both a normal pic and one with his laser eyes engaged. (laughs) Thank you for taking the time to read my email. And I look forward to many years of podcasts in the future. Sincerely, Sean. Thank you, Sean, for writing. Such a good email. Such a good email. First of all, it was not at all at all at all at all. Our intent to belittle their relationship or to make it sound as though we didn't think their relationship 
was a real thing. Yeah. Uh, because clearly it was a loving and committed and supportive relationship. And I don't, I, it was like in my notes, but I don't remember if we said it, um, that there were people who after Mary died, they were like, I don't know how Jane is going to live without her. Yeah. Um, that said, I, my personal feeling, and this is actually a change in my personal feeling over the last 10 or 15 years. Yeah. Uh, is that it actually does a disservice to try to, after someone's death, identify them as a particular orientation because it kind of, it's reductive and kind of presumptuous. And I think it makes it harder for people to understand the grand spectrum of, of like sexual orientations and types of human relationships and things like that. Like I, I, yeah. I'm really reluctant to kind of just check the lesbian box next to someone unless someone themselves uh, expressed that identity to people. Yeah. Uh, and it's something I think you and I both take very seriously. Uh, you know, I, I certainly will say I am, uh, I align myself as an ally. Um, and as far as whether it applies to heterosexuals, no, I mean, my thing is like, I don't th- think unless you're with that person, it mm-hmm. should matter one way or the other. Right. Do you know what I mean? Like, I always joke with people, uh, on the odd, events where it's come up about like oh wait are you straight or I just tell them I'm Brian sexual because that's my husband's <laughs> name <laughs> because it doesn't it's not your it's not your thing to know anyway it doesn't really matter yeah and it's not unless you're potentially interested in that person I don't see why it should play into the conversation at right. all right well yeah um, so I mean it is something we're thoughtful about and take seriously and I really enjoyed how well thought out his letter was and absolutely and what he had to say and I agree it's problematic that that LGBT relationships have gotten short shrift, certainly historically. Right. Well, and the reason that it's that trick of not wanting to assign something to someone without their permission. Right. And I I felt a lot more, I had, I had a lot fewer qualms about doing that, uh, you know, between 10 and 15 years ago when there were so many fewer out LGBT people in the public eye. Yeah. Like when there were so many fewer role models to look at and people to draw on, I, I had a less, <laughs> less of a concern about sort of retroactively saying that because this person had a relationship with this person, that means that person was a lesbian. Like nowadays, I feel like that's, that's more, more reductive than, uh, than supportive. Yeah. And as you said, there's, you know, there's a lot of nuance that I think wasn't yeah. uh, part of the public awareness or consciousness. Yeah. Well, and I said time. in my response to Sean that it would be very easy if I were to somehow become so notable that history books wrote about me. I don't know how that would happen. <laughs> <laughs> but if it did, uh, that, you know, it would be very easy for a historian to look at my life and look at the fact that I was raised in the Methodist church and that I am in a long-term relationship with a man and to draw conclusions about me. And that those conclusions would really, they would assume a lot. They, they would assume specific things based on a few public elements without really having a sense of the entire rest of life. Yeah. So it will probably be an ongoing discussion. Yeah. And one of great interest. And my, my feeling on that may evolve again. So thank you so much again, Sean, for writing this letter. And really thank you everyone for writing us letters. Yeah. <laughs> that express respectful disagreement. Um, because I, I do, I get really upset when when people are, are really upset and we did not intend to yeah. be offensive. So I, I do apologize if I seemed to belittle anyone. That was absolutely 
not my intent. And it was absolutely not my intent to perpetuate any kind of double standard. But uh, I have not read Outlaw Marriages. I haven't either. Uh, I had a friend recommend it to me a while back, and I haven't gotten to it. And I will say, even without the kitties, we would have read the letter. Yeah. But the kitties are really cute. We do. (laughs) We read every email that we got, we get, but we are not able to answer them all currently. We try. I have an alarming number of unanswered emails in the unanswered email folder. Yeah. So thank you again, Sean. Thank you, everyone. Uh, if you would like to write to us, you can. We're at historypodcastdiscovery.com. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash historyclassstuff and on Twitter at History. Our Tumblr is mistinhistory.tumblr.com, and we are pinning up a storm. It's more like a drizzle right now on Pinterest. <laughs> we are pinning, though. We just came off a holiday weekend. So I know. We're, we're catching back up. We're totally catching back up. If you would like to learn more about some of the subjects that we discussed today, you can come to our website. Put the word civil rights in the search bar and you will find how the civil rights movement worked. You can do all that and a whole lot more at our website, which is HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Netflix streams TV shows and movies directly to your home, saving you time, money, and hassle. As a Netflix member, you can instantly watch TV episodes and movies streaming directly to your PC, Mac, or right to your TV with your Xbox 360, PS3, or Nintendo Wii console, plus Apple devices, Kindle, and Nook. Get a free 30-day trial membership. Go to www.netflix.com and sign up now. Do you like boats? Do you like big boats? Do you like poor people and the rich people they serve on big boats? Are you always like, what goes on below deck? Hi, this is Anna Hosnier. And Nick Turner. The hosts of Deckheads. And we want to take you on a fun and goofy adventure. In this binge-style podcast, we will watch and recap every episode of Bravo's Below Deck and all of its spinoffs. And we're going to release an episode a day so you can watch along with us and listen to our silly daily recaps. Listen to Deckheads when it drops on February 20th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, I'm Shane Bacon, and I want to tell you about a new podcast called Get a Grip with Max Homa and Shane Bacon. One guy that has probably hit a 350-yard drive, considers himself an athlete mostly because of his unreal papa shot abilities, and has in fact started to show off signs of a tricep forming, is our own Max Homa, PGA Tour winner and fan favorite online. Max and myself turn out new episodes every week to give the fan a unique look at golf and all that comes with it from someone that spends his work weeks on tracks we all dream to play, grinding and out with the best in the world. Listen and follow Get a Grip with Max Soma and Shane Bacon on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you listen to podcasts right now.